foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. My name is Wei, and I am the China is not our enemy campaign coordinator at Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington DC, KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. And many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCBLP 107.9 FM. We're also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at www.codeping.org/radio, where you will find all our episodes from episode one to our most recent. On March 23rd, a congressional hearing took place where the TikTok CEO was grilled for five hours on the grounds of quote-unquote security concerns. This was days after the FBI and DOJ launched an investigation on the Chinese-owned American company. Ironically, while the U.S. government is putting TikTok under the magnifying glass, it's turning a blind eye to its own surveillance programs on the American people. Only last year, that the post-9/11 NSA phone surveillance program was reported to have shut down. Major telecom companies like Verizon gave the government access to hundreds of millions of calls and texts by American people. Data Miner, a startup Twitter partner, provided police with data about racial justice protests. One focus is quote-unquote potential gang members targeting Black and Latin people, including school-aged children. The Department of Homeland Security and Immigration and Customs Enforcement have monitored the social media activities of immigrant rights activists. The State Department used social media screening to discriminate against the Muslim, Arab, Middle Eastern, and South Asian communities under the Trump administration's Muslim ban. In 2020, the FBI used social media to monitor racial justice protesters who were targeted for arrests. For example. Activist Mike Avery was arrested after posting about protests on Facebook, and his charges were dropped without explanation a few weeks later. An FBI official was so frustrated with the extensive social media surveillance that he told the Intercept, "Man, I don't even know what's legal anymore." The dissonance between accusing TikTok of security concerns and working with other companies to invade people's privacy rings loudly in our ears. If our lawmakers are concerned about protecting digital privacy, then Congress should start with investigating American federal agencies. In banning TikTok, the U.S. is projecting its own invasive policies onto another government. The ongoing effort to investigate and ban TikTok is not about our privacy, but about creating paranoia and justifying aggression towards China. Moreover, the current bill, disguised as a TikTok ban, 
S-686, also known as the Restrict Act, has been compared to the Patriot Act and would give Secretary of Commerce the power to take down any online platform deemed as quote-unquote threat. You can learn more by visiting codeping.org slash TikTok. Fear-mongering about China has also caused the rise of anti-Asian racism in the U.S. Now, we're hearing from Michael Liu, author of Forever Struggle, Activism, Identity, and Survival in Boston's Chinatown, 1880 to 2018, published by the University of Massachusetts Press, about the myriad ways that U.S.-China relations have shaped the fate and the course of this community in its turbulent history. Uh, so U.S.-China uh, relations have had a long history, uh, actually even before the formation of the country. If you remember the Boston Tea Party, which was a precipitating event in the American Revolution, revolved around imported Chinese goods. And one month after the formation, uh, the founding of the country, a U.S. ship, the Empress of China, left the port, uh, the port of New York to establish a direct connection to China. But the circulation of trade inevitably led to the circulation of labor. So by the 1850s, large numbers of Chinese laborers arrived in California into a recently assembled transcontinental United States. The, re the relationship was, however, one of otherness and contempt. So recall that in the middle 19th century, the US was deeply engaged in, expan in expansion. We believed in manifest destiny, our divine right to take over um, the continental uh, in, uh, United States. Um, the Mexican-American Mexican War, which ended in 1848, and the 1898 Spanish-American War bracketed the last half of the 19th century. Uh, the Spanish-American War was when we became a full imperialist power uh, and racist characterizations of people of color, of people of color, including Chinese, were arose and were popularized to justify their subjugation. So an image uh, from uh, Park, a prominent contemporary US publication captured these attitudes. So this, so this is an image from Park and uh, it kind of illustrates the attitude of the day. Of the, day. the United States, uh, this is 1898, I believe. And the attitude of the day was that, you know, in, in this situation, the United States was a teacher, everybody else, the uh, countries of color were children. So in the front, you can see the, the uh, countries of the Philippines, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Cuba, which had been taken uh, in the Spanish-American War, the recent Spanish-American War uh, from, from Spain. And uh, behind them, you can see the territories conquered uh, from, from Mexico, uh, and in the front is, you know, well-known states, the large states of Texas and California. In the corner on, on the upper left, you can see a, a 
uh, African-American boy washing windows, probably without pay. And in the corner, you can see a uh, one of the indigenous tribes reading a book upside down. And outside the door, not yet a colony, uh, are Chinese Americans, I mean, are Chinese. Um, and on the blackboard, it says the US, the US must govern its new territories with or without their consent until they can govern themselves because of course the kids and they don't know how to do they don't know how to govern themselves so that was sort of a common attitude um so the other key element um of u.s china relations was the continued decline of the chinese empire uh they could only feebly intervene for their own interests and also for their people so from the time that chinese stepped onto uh, U.S. shores, uh, discrimination, scorn, and uh, exploitation characterized their status. You know, the image I was going to show you is uh, from the Smithsonian, and it was also from a, a, a magazine in, uh, 18, in the 1871, uh, in which um, it, which gave, which expressed the attitudes of a lot of people in the United States toward the Chinese, and one of them said that essentially that Chinese are the lowest form of human life and that I, as a white man, am opposed to them on the basis of one race, two, uh, industry, three, uh, uh, politics and other, and lastly, in terms of um, ethics. So that, and all, and all the other sentiments uh, were, uh, were similarly expressed. So, um, so therefore, you know, and, and actually in the image, the United States was, uh, government was seen as uh, trying to guarantee Chinese uh, who came to the US um, fair play, but, you know, that did not last very long. Um, so I'm not gonna go into detail into this early period that um, extended into the 20th century uh, and it was and culminated in the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the only US immigration law that singled out uh, ethnic or racial group for exclusion. But I wanted to make two points about it. First, in this early period, what's often forgotten is the casual and daily violence against Chinese that occurred particularly after the 1873 depression, uh, white workers supported by politicians and public bodies led campaigns to drive Chinese out of many areas. The largest lynching in the United States occurred in 1871 in Los Angeles, where 15 Chinese were hung. Six others died or killed by other means. Um, Denver, Seattle, Tacoma, San Jose, Pasadena were among the 300 communities that had similar campaigns and drove Chinese out of their borders. And this is when, of course, the West was, was much more sparsely settled. So that, uh, you know, violence against Chinese and, and Asians is thus, you know, an integral part of US history. Uh, second, since the Chinese, by, by the exclusion through the Exclusion Act, were denied 
the right of natural naturalization. Um, this period branded them as permanent aliens. This embedded the view that Chinese were forever, forever foreign and thus suspect, and this would subject them, subject them to future changes in US-China relations. And uh, also anti-Chinese sentiment was national in scope. The state of Massachusetts, you know, where, where I live, for example, prohibited Chinese from more than 20 uh, occupations. Other state laws re restricted employment to citizens or union members, disqualifying Chinese. They could only find housing in um, undesirable areas. And a social worker for one of the largest settlement houses in the city expressed a typical sentiment saying that Chinese, quote, can never be in any sense American, end quote. So Chinese Americans remain a marginalized population during the decades following 1882. Those notable changes in attitudes only followed changes in US-China relations. China, which became a repu republic in 1911, was an ally of the United States during World War I. But it was the Japanese encroachment into China, the Sino-Japanese War, and reported Japanese abuses in the 1930s that led the US press and the public to adopt a more sympathetic attitude toward Chinese Americans. And this only strengthened with the entrance of the United, the United States uh, in the war in 1945, and, and China was a, again a wartime ally. So this war eventually loosened the restrictions on Chinese immigration, but Chinese exclusion was an increasingly embarrassing policy. The Japanese used it as propaganda fodder for the wartime uh, radio broadcasts, and there were protests in both China and the United States against, against the policy. So China repealed it. I mean, Congress repealed the Exclusion Act in 1943, but it revealed its continuing prejudice by limiting the quota of immigration to 105 annually. Um, however, things became better. Um, you know, Chinese could finally become naturalized. Um, Chinese could housing segregation decreased, even though there was still discrimination. Uh, Chinese would begin to live outside of the uh, Chinese enclaves. Uh, and then wartime necessity, necessity opened up occupations to Chinese who had been prim primarily limited to laundries and restaurants. And like other soldiers of color, Chinese American returning veterans began to view themselves as, as deserving of more equal rights. So in the immediate post-World War II period, through the immigration of small numbers of professionals, through the War Brides Act, which allowed Chinese American women in, which had the Exclusion Act had, had uh, had uh, forb forb forbade, and to other small groups, the first family-based community structure for, uh, began to build in the Chinese American community. But in 1949, the, the communist victory in the Chinese Civil War led to reversions. This was the early Cold War, 
and right-wing McCarthyism prevailed. One of his main issues was, quote, who lost China, implying the presence of traitors and subversives. Despite the Chinese-American community leadership's staunch anti-communism, suspicion of the population was part of the campaign. Immigration became much more difficult. Uh, Left-oriented community organizations were physically attacked and harassed. Mainstream Chinese community organizations were subpoenaed. FBI investigations in the, in the Chinatown initiated and grand juries were impaneled. Beginning in 1956 and lasting a decade, the Immigration and Naturalization Service uh, had an investigation with, which ensnared a sizable proportion of the community. The Chinese Confession Program probed the immigration status of, the, of many community members, part of the hunt for resident traders. It affected one in three Chinese Americans, including war veterans. This period led to imprisonment, de uh, deportation, and at least one suicide. And so therefore, in the space of a few years, Chinese Americans were seen as a late alien others, then allies, and then potential traders, dependent uh, on the vagaries of US-China relations. Since the 1960s, the superpower role and posture of the United States, the civil rights and black power movement and immigration law reform uh, opened a more benign period for, for Chinese and Asian Americans. More directly, the establishment of relations with the People's Republic of China and attempts to pull it into the neoliberal global order have created a more peaceful environment. However, this last phase is ending now, and I think the other panelists will speak to the consequent present conditions. Thank you so much, Michael. You are listening to Coping Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, KPFT in Houston, and KPFK in Los Angeles. We will be back after this break with Dr. Nicole Filler, Judge Julie Tang, and Dr. Kenneth Hammond. Two, one, two, three, four.
that was "Give Peace a Chance" by John Lennon. Welcome back. My name is Wei, and I am the China is Not Our Enemy campaign coordinator at Code Pink. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK in Los Angeles. Now we are hearing from Dr. Nicole Filler, a program coordinator and research associate for the Anti-Asian Racism Project at the Institute for Asian American Studies at University of Massachusetts Boston. Nicole is discussing the relationship between the U.S. policies and practices, and the surge in the reported hate crime and incidents against Asians since the onset of COVID-19. Thank you to Michael for bringing us through uh, quite a long history and one that、uh, we need to keep remembering,、um, so as not so as to better understand what is going on right now.、Um, a, a low in.、Uh, Anti-China and anti-Asian sentiments here in the United States. So、um, I am the program coordinator and research associate for the Anti-Asian Racism Project at the Institute for Asian American Studies at UMass Boston.、Um, I am fairly new to Boston and new to Massachusetts,、uh, so this has been a learning process,、um, kind of understanding the different ways racism、uh, manifests and、um, is shaped. Uh, by the more local context,、um, and certainly、uh, Massachusetts has not been immune to、um, the hatred,、um, vitriol, and violence um, um, against Asians, and particularly against Chinese or those suspected of being Chinese.、Um, I'm going to draw from a few sources.、Um, Uh, data from various different、um, organizations over the past few years, including、um, the Institute for Asian American Studies, as well as AAPI data.、Um, a lot of the data I'm going to share with you are, is from、um, Stop AAPI Hate,、um, an organization, a racial justice co-、uh, uh, racial justice coalition. Um, based in San Francisco, that has been collecting um, um, reports online of incidents of anti uh, 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 hate incidents, incidents of hate hate incidents against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders、um, since March 2020.、Um, I'll also share a bit of、uh, data from the Federal Bureau of Investigation tracking、um, hate crimes, as well as、um, the stories. From、um, and personal testimonies from community members here in Boston,、um, um, and especially in Chinatown, who have shared their personal experiences um, um, with racist, xenophobic hate. So,、uh, even prior to um, um, COVID nineteen,、um, President Trump had. Uh, campaigned um, um, and fulfilled the promises of the Muslim ban、um, in 2016.、Uh, launched the China Initiative in uh, 2018, um, only recently to be ended.、Um, and uh, as soon as、um, COVID-19 began,、um, or the onset of COVID-19,、um, at the highest levels of office. The pandemic has been racialized as a Chinese virus,、um, but uh, the view、um, uh, or the suspicion with which Chinese、uh, and other Asians are um, um, treated 
uh, based on their association with their home country um, continues. Uh, and uh, Gang Chen was one of the hundreds of uh, cases, um, uh, false um, prosecutions, false accusations of espionage that have destroyed the careers of Chinese Americans uh, even prior to COVID-19. So the, the racist rhetoric um, that uh, persisted uh, from the beginning of the COVID-19, from the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in March 2020, um, labeling COVID-19 as the China virus, insisting that China is to blame um, because of the health pandemic, uh, to blame uh, for the health pandemic because of the quote culture. Um, and uh, over the past, uh, over the two years, um, since the explicit and overt racist rhetoric um, at the highest levels of office, Stop AAPI Hate received over 11,000 reports of hate incidents against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders nationwide. As of early 2022, a uh, um, survey by uh, um, Launch and the Asian American Foundation found that about 20% of, of Americans overall believe that Asian Americans are at least partially responsible for COVID-19. And this is an increase uh, compared to the survey taken in 2021. More recently uh, in Texas, the uh, proposal of Senate Bill 147 to ban Chinese as well as Iranians, North Koreans, and Russians who are not um, citizens from owning land is uh, certainly uh, a, a repetition of history um, of the kinds of racist laws like the uh, alien land laws um, and the Chinese Exclusion Act. And even more recently in uh, just last month, um, Representative Lance Gooden questioned the quote, loyalty and competence of Rep Judy Chu, who is the chairwoman of the Congressional APA Caucus. Um, and of course, this, uh, the, the kinds of everyday violence um, and mass uh, tragedies, mass shootings uh, certainly are not covered in, in just this list of events, but uh, the um, increasing um, animosity towards China um, is certainly having an effect on, on not only Chinese in, uh, um, not only Chinese uh, in the United States, but other Asian Americans as well. So these are, these are reports um, from Stop AAPI Hate and uh, um, that were submitted to Stop AAPI Hate um, from um, United States overall and, and in Massachusetts. So Massachusetts, um, their uh, Stop AAPI Hate received 340 um, reports of anti-AAPI incidents um, in Massachusetts, or about 1.6% of all uh, reports, sorry, about 3% of all reports. N nationwide, one in five incidents involved um, language that explicitly scapegoats Asian and Asian Americans. That includes wrongfully blaming them for COVID-19. Uh, blaming them for espionage on behalf of the Communist Party, um, or blaming them for economic insecurity. So a significant share, uh, um, 
thousands of, of incidents and even incidents that have occurred in uh, Massachusetts um, are explicitly mirroring the, the rhetoric, um, um, the anti-China rhetoric, uh, blaming Chinese culture, Chinese people, um, and it's uh, having a direct effect on the lives, the physical, the mental, the financial well-being of members of the Asian American community. So verbal and physical, uh, verbal hate speech and harassment comprised uh, the largest share of, of incidents, both the United States and in Massachusetts. Uh, but physical assaults um, are still a, a, a significant share, both in Massachusetts and in, and in uh, nationwide. Um, more recently uh, in Quincy, uh, um, these kind of uh, um, overt uh, anti-China rhetoric that's appearing in uh, um, it, uh, incidents, hate incidents and hate crimes um, recently occurred in, in Quincy, Massachusetts, a town with uh, uh, one of the largest Asian American populations in, in Massachusetts and uh, um, um, uh, just south of, of the city of Boston, yelling racial epithets as uh, he was uh, uh, an Asian man was, was uh, run over by a car. Many of these incidents don't capture the toll that um, xenophobia and racism, hatred takes on the lives of, of our members of our community every day. Uh, so a twice unborn grandfather in his 80s explained in a listening session in June uh, love last year that he and his wife lived daily, fearing that they would be deported due to anti-immigrant anti rhetoric and misinformation. Usually, usually an active person, he didn't leave his apartment for weeks and spent countless nights without sleep and start experiencing dizziness. The incidents uh, that were reported to stop AAPI hate, um, uh, a plurality occur in public streets and spaces uh, followed by businesses. And we've heard countless stories um, and seen countless examples of harassment and physical assaults uh, in public streets and near businesses in spaces where uh, Asian Americans frequent and feel safe um, and have built community. In April 2022, uh, an Asian woman elder and resident of Massachusetts for nearly 50 years was approached from the side and punched in the face while leaving a bakery in Boston's Chinatown. She shared her story uh, with uh, Council President Flynn um, and on uh, public uh, uh, news media. Her daughter also shared how difficult it was um, to, to find resources, to know what to do after, um, feeling that the police weren't able to help and didn't provide uh, any kind of, of redress. There are several uh, um, uh, Narratives in uh, Stop AAPI Hate reports from Boston, Massachusetts, um, and I invite you to check those out. 
Um, however, only 38% of the incidents submitted to stop at APA came from Boston, the city of Boston. So the majority, uh, um, meaning that, that this is happening not only in, in Boston, but also throughout Massachusetts. And quickly, uh, a few surveys um, have shown in, that the uh, incidents that has been submitted to stop AAPI hate might even um, uh, underestimate uh, or be biased in terms of who shares those incidents. And I should mention that uh, the people who are reporting incidents to stop AAP, AAPI hate from Massachusetts uh, were um, um, 50%, 54% Chinese, more likely to be women and more likely to be younger than nationwide reports. Hate crimes uh, against anti-Asian hate crimes or hate crimes against Asian Americans um, seem to be uh, um, abating or decreasing. 54% uh, of a Asians in an a API data uh, momentum poll uh, in March of 2022 indicated that they had experienced a hate crime or hate incident in 2021. Um, it, it, as of early March, 2022, that percentage had uh, was uh, 28%, suggesting a slight um, abatement. So Asian Americans are not the only uh, victims of hate crimes or hate incidents in, in a time of overt white supremacist violence. And uh, the AAPI data poll also shows this. The IAS COVID-19 survey, which focused on low-income immigrant, uh, limited English-speaking Asian Americans in the greater Boston area, also found that uh, um, incidents of, of um, racial harassment and discrimination um, are certainly not um, uh, uncommon. Uh, and these experiences have been hidden from existing surveys or previous surveys that uh, tend to lump Asian Americans together and not understand our diversities and disparities within the community. Uh, I'll end um, with, with this slide, um, or I'll skip a few slides since I think we're running out of time, um, but I want to mention that even in the most conservative estimates of um, hate crimes that are reported by law enforcement, by Massachusetts law enforcement, anti-Asian hate crimes in Massachusetts increased um, by more than 100% um, from before the pandemic uh, through 2021. Uh, so uh, there were 14 reported anti-Asian hate crime incidents by Massachusetts law enforcement in 2019. In 2021, that number was 30. Um, and to put this in perspective, hate crimes, uh, law enforcement reported hate crimes have been increasing um, since before the pandemic. Um, Asian Americans, uh, anti-Asian hate crimes um, increased throughout both the first and the second years of the pandemic, while several other groups saw, several other racial groups um, saw uh, increases in, in hate crimes, racially motivated hate crimes, um, especially anti-Black hate crimes, uh, while that number declined in 2021 and among uh, uh, other racial groups. 
that increased for Asian, kept increasing for Asian Americans, and it also increased for uh, anti-Arab hate crimes. So what we are doing now and what we continue to hope, continue to do, uh, focusing on reducing barriers to reporting hate crimes and other experiences of discrimination. Um, this, uh, we, we're well aware of the barriers to reporting both on the side of the individuals and groups that are targeted, um, but also on the side of law enforcement who might not understand anti-Asian racism or the kinds of discrimination uh, that people of Asian descent uh, experience on a daily basis. We're also prioritizing the physical, mental, and financial health and well-being of those impacted, most impacted by anti-Asian hate, violence, and racism, particularly Chinese Americans, immigrants, limited English speakers, um, and elders. Promoting education about Asian American history experience, identity, and contributions to advancing social justice, similar to what uh, Forever Struggle, the book, is about, uh, and also in relation to other racial and ethnic groups. Uh, finally, it's important that we're ensuring that businesses and other places in the community are hate-free zones. So spaces where Asian Americans, this could be Asian-owned businesses in Massachusetts, um, uh, committing to uh, creating spaces for anyone who feels unsafe to um, uh, um, have a point of refuge, um, a place to regroup, um, uh, figure out what to do next, learn about resources. Um, and so this is where we're heading next for our group. But um, uh, we also uh, have by bystander trainings um, and uh, um, self-defense and other community events um, to ensure that these issues are being addressed. Thank you. I'm joined by Kenneth Hammond, professor at New Mexico State University, author of From Yao to Mao, and co-founder of Pivot to Peace, and Julie Tang, retired judge of the San Francisco Superior Court, and co-founder of the Comfort Women Justice Coalition and Pivot to Peace. Thank you for joining us, Ken and Julie. Thank you. Glad to be here. Today is the Qingming Festival, a traditional Chinese holiday for commemorating and paying respect to ancestors. Timed with the Qingming Festival, former Taiwan President Ma Yingjiu has embarked on a historic trip to mainland China. This trip makes Ma the first former or current Taiwan president to visit the mainland. Against the political backdrop of heightened tension in the Taiwan Strait, Ma's visit is highly personal. During the 12-day trip, Ma and his sisters trace their family roots to a village in Hunan province and pay tribute to their grandparents who were buried there. Ma also brought 30 young people from Taiwan to engage with university students in mainland China. Ma's visit coincides with current Taiwan president Tsai Ing-jeou's visit to Central America with two quote-unquote transits in the United States bookending the trip. Taiwan and the U.S. don't have formal diplomatic relations, so Tsai's transits are not official state visits. The White House has not been participating publicly, and Tsai met with a few politicians informally, and very lately, just this Monday, there was an announcement that there will be a meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and some other officials. It was almost a hush-hush visit, and we'll talk more about that. I want to start with a question for Ken. Ma's visit to mainland China is timed with the Qingming Festival. Could you tell us more about the cultural significance of this holiday? 
Sure. The Qingming Festival is is a very very ancient uh, moment. Uh, it's a very very ancient mark in the in the Chinese annual calendar that is dedicated to the commemoration of one's ancestors. Uh, Qingming it means pure and bright. Uh, comes at this time at the beginning of April. Uh, you know, as the as the year is is warming up and the sun is coming out more, uh, and so it's a it's a moment of of both commemoration, uh, but also in a sense of of looking forward, connecting to the past, connecting to one's ancestors, uh, but also celebrating. Uh, people go out to to the tombs of their ancestors. Uh, you clean up. You maybe have a, a a little ritual there of expressing your respect for the ancestors, and often then families will gather, have a have a meal, meal. Uh, make a little sort of have a have a place at the table in a sense uh, for the presence of the spirits of the ancestors. It's a as I say, it's a very it's a very deep traditional um, um, ritual in Chinese culture, and I think that uh, it's important that Ma Yingzhou is making this uh, visit, making this journey to uh, connect with his ancestors on the mainland. Uh, this is a time. It's a it's a it's a marker. Of the 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 unity uh, of the people on both sides of the Straits of Taiwan, that these are Chinese people, they share a culture, they share language, they share rituals and traditions, they share an identity, uh, a consciousness of who they are and and of their being, and I think that that in this context, the the present sort of moment, where there's been so much. Uh, uh, stirring up of uh, possible uh, divisions, or at least attempts to to foment uh, divisions between people on Taiwan and people on the mainland. That Ma Yingzhou's uh, efforts here, you can see uh, in in the video, uh, taking part in these ritual activities. Uh, this is a gesture of of community. It's a gesture of solidarity. It's a gesture of continuity, uh, because this is a it's a single culture. There's plenty of diversity, of course, uh, within China, different regions, different cuisines, different dialects. We all know that China is not some sort of monolithic entity, but there are certain commonalities and certain continuities within Chinese civilization, within Chinese culture, within the lives of, of ordinary Chinese people that unite them, that that allow Chinese people to recognize each other and recognize the, the bonds of, of, of unity which hold them together. So I think it's a it's a it's a wonderful gesture. It's a gesture that that suggests that uh, you know some things go deeper than the than the news cycle or the latest attempt to grab a headline or score a political point, and that uh, uh, this is the kind of of this is the kind of joining together. This is the kind of unified vision of a future, a future shared by people on both sides of the strait that I think we all hope for. Certainly those of us working with Pivot to Peace or Code Pink, uh, we're very much dedicated to this. And I think that Ma Yingzhou uh, really deserves, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of praise uh, for taking what has to be a, a somewhat courageous move at this time uh, and stepping up and saying, you know, we are Chinese people. We share our culture. We want to be together. Thank you, Ken. And uh, my next question is for Julie. Um, we mentioned that uh, Tsai is having these two quote-unquote transits in the U.S. How is the American civil society reacting to Tsai's transits? 
And how is that contrasted with mass reception by the Chinese public? Most Americans don't know or care about what Chai is doing here. Many don't even know where Taiwan is, let alone its history and relationship with China. Taiwan is part of China. In 1979, the United States signed a joint agreement with China, called it the Shanghai Communicate, that there is but one China and Taiwan is part of China. And any dispute between Taiwan and China shall be resolved between them. Most Americans are not aware of this United States commitment to China. Chai's visit here is insignificant to Americans, but significant to her home audience. She's here to drum up support for her party, the DPP, for Taiwan's 2024 presidential election. And she needs drama and political presence in the United States and proof that United States has her back. But so far, it has not boded well for her. The White House has shunned her, ostensibly due to the non-diplomatic nature of a visit. But we know this concern about China's objections to her visit. In the United States, there are demonstrations trailing her everywhere. She also has a closed-door meeting where she got an award from a think tank that is said to have received hundreds of thousands of dollars in grant funding from Taiwan. On the other hand, former President Ma of Taiwan has been having a busy, joyous, and emotional visit in China. He paid honor to his grandfather's graveyard and visit the museums of former war heroes who died fighting the Japanese during World War II. There were very emotional moments in particular when he visited the Memorial Hall of the Victims in Nanjing. He visited historical places that have a shared history with Taiwan and China. He even sang a famous song with the young people from China. Everywhere he was greeted with respect and love and joy, and he was given the honor and prestige of a foreign dignitary. The Chinese public loved him. They called up Mr. Ma, Ma Shanshang, when they saw him. And in some instances, he responded spontaneously and affectionately. These are very different experiences and treatment from what Chai Ing-wen, the current president of Taiwan, has from America, and what Ma Ying-jeou, a former president of Taiwan in, the, in China. Very different. Thank you, Julie. Going back to Ken, what is the role of the United States in the heightened tension in the Taiwan Strait? What is the meaning of her meeting with McCarthy, which the White House has not endorsed or objected to? Well, the role of the United States in, in the situation regarding the, the status of Taiwan is that it is it is the destabilizing force. Uh, you know, the, the the position of the, the government in Beijing, the position of the of the government of the People's Republic, the government of China, uh, has been stated repeatedly over and over again, which is that the, the status of Taiwan, the question of the status of Taiwan, is a question that comes down from history. It comes down from the end of the Civil War, the end of the 1940s, uh, when the nationalist uh, movement uh, lost and went to the island of Taiwan. 
and under the protection of the United States uh, Navy, which interposed itself in the strait at that point between the mainland and the island, um, has been protected by the United States uh, over many, many years. And the United States continues to supply uh, massive amounts of equipment and assistance to Taiwan. So this is a situation that has come down from history. Uh, and it is a situation, according to the, the People's Republic and according to the agreement that uh, the United States has had, it is a situation that needs to be resolved by the Chinese people on both sides of the strait in their own way and in their own time without, side, without any outside interference. Uh, it's a situation that isn't going to be resolved by intervention. It isn't going to be resolved by American pressure. It isn't going to be resolved by the United States trying to provoke China in, in one way or another. It's something that needs to be taken care of. And there's no hurry. It's not something which, uh, you know, is, is, is going to change overnight. Uh, it has, there, there have been there's been tremendous progress, especially when Ma Yingzhou was president. Uh, you know, agreements were reached, meetings were held. 600,000 plus people from Taiwan live on the mainland. Millions and millions of travelers go back and forth across the strait every year. There's massive amounts, billions and billions of dollars of investment uh, across the strait. Uh, you know, China and Taiwan are not, not just sort of theoretically or absconnected, but they are they are integrated with one another economically and very much, as I was just saying about Ma Yingzhou's trip, very much culturally. You know, the National Palace Museum in Taipei holds the treasures, many of the greatest treasures of Chinese civilization brought by the nationalists back in 1948-49. But that symbolizes the connections, the, the ongoing linkages between the island and the rest of the country. So it's the United States that has been provoking China. It's the United States politicians, not so much with an eye on the actual needs or interests of the people of Taiwan, and certainly not with an eye on the interests of the needs of the people of China, but also not even with an eye on the needs of the people of the United States, our people. Uh, you know, it's the American politicians trying to score political points, trying to trying to ratchet up their their electoral, you know, ratings or something, grab 30 seconds of a, of a soundbite. Um, and they're being very reckless and very dangerous. So I think that, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, about no war with China, no war over Taiwan, stop the military aid, things like that, what we're trying to do is is calm things down, get American political leaders to get back in touch with the real world. And and let's let's go forward and try to make the best of a situation which can be beneficial for, for all people on both sides of the strait and for the American people and not be reckless, provocative, uh, trying, to, trying to spark conflict where no one will benefit and where the Chinese people, all of them, both sides of the strait, are perfectly capable of pursuing their own interests and resolving their own issues. Thank you, Ken. And I really appreciate you bringing up um, the role of the people here because my final question for Julie, uh, what should be the takeaway from these two visits for the public and for peace activists? I echo a lot of what Professor Hammond said. I think the most important aspect of this trip for Mr. Ma, the former president of Taiwan, is that he showed a peaceful reunification between Taiwan and China should be the goal 
and it's entirely possible. He showed the Taiwan people that they shared a common root that goes back centuries, that they are brothers and sisters across the street. They don't need to go to war to resolve their differences. Now, both actually both Ma and Chai's visits made it very clear what it would be like in the 2024 Taiwan election. Chai's handpicked candidate will follow the war path, continuing to pursue a separatist movement and stoke a war with China under U.S. hegemon. But Ma's peace mission, the former president's mission, showed that there is an option for the Taiwan electorates. He showed them what a future would be like under reunification, and there's a model in which China and Taiwan could resolve differences on their own. Taiwan people should not be used as a proxy to fight the U.S. war. And this is where Chai is making a big mistake. Judging from the way that she has been treated in the United States, she doesn't have much leverage over the United States. Our country will use her and be done with her just as fast when we don't need her. But China will always open her arms to welcome Taiwan back into its motherland. Remember Kissinger once said, to be an enemy of the United States is dangerous. To be our friend is fatal. Former President Ma's visit to China and Chai's visit to the United States is indeed a learning moment for the people of Taiwan and for the world. Thank you so much, Julie and Ken, for all your insight today. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Wei, for hosting this program. Thank you for listening to Coping Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK in Los Angeles. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil